Hi everybody and welcome to another edition of the In My Life podcast. I was sort of missed last week on due to unforeseen circumstances, but as always I'm back and I'm with Andy Wales. Andy, I apologise about last week, but we're back again. How are you? I'm, I'm not so bad, I'm not so bad. Um, quite intrigued by t- tonight's one. Could be quite an education for me, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a very sort of Italian flavour to it uh, t- today, just, just looking at it. But uh, I, I think we'll we'll learn something, if nothing else, from this one, Andy. I'm always up for learning something new. Well, me too. So our guest today is the host of the Serie A sit-down on WFI. He also uh, runs a very popular column on Italian football on our website. Uh, it's Mr. Frank Cravello. Frank, very, very welcome to In My Life. I think it's the first pod I've ever done with you. Imagine you've been with us for nearly a year. I've never been on a pod with you. How are you today? I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm scared. I have to teach. I thought I was just going to give some of my favorite, some of my favorite and most negative moments. And, you know, in an hour, that would be that. No. <laughs> other, than, other than that, I'm good. And, uh, you know, like I said, when I did the 11 pieces of meat pod day, I'm shaking over here because I'm used to hosting. So, but... <laughs> You know, shut me up if I uh, try to start taking over. That's all, you know, that, that, that's all you need to do. <laughs> ah, no problem. We, we, we like people who take over. Andy and I just sit with our feet up with a couple, you know. <laughs> we'll be quite happy. Uh, so, as I say, you have a very sort of Italian flavor to, to this one. And, and, you know, looking down through them, I, I used to love Syria in the 90s. And I sort of got out of the way of it and never went back to it. But we're going to start to uh, for the Milan derby in 2008 as, as your most positive moment. So, Frank, the floor is yours. Talk us through why it's such a positive for you. My uh, wife and I got to attend it in person. That was our, uh, our, our two-week honeymoon in Italy, and we started off in Milan. You know, we had targeted that weekend to be in Milan for starters, but uh, she was courteous enough to allow me to wait until the Serie A schedule came out for the season. And then when it was released and we found it was home match versus Inter, uh, I immediately called her and I said, we're going exactly the time that we planned. <laughs> so you know, she agreed. And then uh, we ended up, uh, I ended up having a friend who was playing, uh, playing football with at the time who uh, was from Germany and uh, found a Swiss website for us that was selling tickets at face value because many of the uh, you know, British and English speaking based websites were just about charging double for what we paid. But nonetheless, we got the tickets and we got to go. And, and the day itself was just phenomenal just to be in the city. Um, you know, we went to mass at the, at the Duomo and we walked around for much of the day. And, and, and really, it is, it is all the city cares about that day. And, and people either dressed in red and black or they were dressed in blue and black. And it was certainly, um, certainly something to behold. Uh, we got into the stadium two hours before kickoff. The ultra sections were already full and they were already shouting at each other. The stadium itself was half full. The atmosphere was just incredible. It was uh, Jose Mourinho's first derby as Inter manager. Uh, it was the first derby for Ronaldinho. He, in fact, scored the goal. I was there for Mourinho's first Milan derby and I was there for Ronaldinho's first Milan goal, albeit with his head uh, on a counterattack. He started the counterattack, played a deep diagonal ball. Kaka ran onto it, got the ball, held it right hand side of the uh penalty area, uh, which is actually, we were seated up from that. And then he just waited for Ronaldinho to make a run, played a looping ball into the area and and Ronaldinho scored with his head, which when does he ever score with his head? So a lot of magic that night. uh, And and Milan would, would go on and hold on for the win. And it was, uh, uh, you know, certainly a a special night and a special atmosphere and something I'm, uh, I'm never, ever going to forget. 
And I take it that that would have been your very first experience of European football, was it, Frank? It was, absolutely. First and only, in fact. There was no crowd trouble or no no problems there because always those games seem to be synonymous. And they don't normally get reported in the media a great deal, but there tends to be problems at those types of games. I take it you didn't have any any problems there? Yeah, our hotel wasn't very far uh, from the stadium. and We took a a short cab uh, to a certain, to as far as the cabs could go. And then we walked, you know, the rest of it. And I was in a meal, I was in a, my, my red and black uh, Milan shirt. My wife had my white uh, Milan shirt. We walked in with our scarves and all that other stuff. And in fact, we had Interfans that we stopped and uh, took pictures with. The fanfare actually off the grounds and walking in was, you know, n- no incidents that uh, that we saw. It was very polite and it was very courteous from, from both sides. And, you know, to your point, we actually talked about this in a previous, in one of our previous Serie A pods when Italy played Albania and Palermo and they had the uh, the crowd violence with the Albanian fans that game. To your point, it you know that sort of stuff does get magnified with Italian football because you do see it a lot. Well, you don't see it a lot, but when it happens, it seems to just get magnified with Italian football, uh, you know, more than most places. But no, we had a very positive experience all the way around. Did your wife enjoy uh, San Siro being the setting for a honeymoon? Then <laughs> <laughs> this was this was my one wish. The rest of it was uh, the rest of it was hers. So and and Jose Mourinho losing is always a positive. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, it can't hurt. And I I want to say that Marco Materazzi was ejected from the match from the substitutes bench too uh, at some point in the second half. Somebody was saying that yeah, it was Materazzi that they that they ejected and they sent. Uh, uh, sent back to the dressing room. So, of, of all the Italian footballers throughout my throughout my life, he's the one that I despise the most. Never been a big fan of. So that 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 kind of sweetened it too. But yeah, uh, Mourinho Mourinho losing anytime is 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 fun. Though my brother is finally starting to get into football, and he's he's a Manchester United supporter just because of Mourinho. So. Um, oh he says he'll just, yeah, he says, he, he says he's just going to support whoever, whoever Mourinho manages. He just, he loves, he loves the pressers and he loves the sound bites. So, right. So moving swiftly on into a negative, which I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at it and it's bizarre that it's a negative because it's one of, one of my favorite Champions League finals in 1995, uh, Ajax beating Milan. I understand why, uh, you would possibly see it as a negative, Frank, but I think one of our first pods on In My Life, it came up and I, I sort of cited this as a, as a better one, just given the fact of, of the, you know, the up and comings in that midfield of, of Ajax at the time and, and where they went yeah. on to and what they became and whatnot. It would be one of my favorites. So maybe you can explain to us why it would be a negative, obviously, from a Milan point of view. I had uh, the utmost positive feeling that Milan was going to win that final. Uh, I was 20 years old at the time. I'd followed. It was the first time that the United, the first year that the United States was brought the Champions League, uh, it was covered on ESPN. They would cover a spotlight game, uh, you know, on each match day. You know, where the very first one from match day one was was the game at Ajax in the downpour in Amsterdam. Ruud Hullet was back with Milan and just was a a sluggish performance overall for Milan. And fall of 1994, the theme for Milan that season was just pretty much along what you saw in Amsterdam. They were struggling. Uh, talk about World Cup hangover because many of the players were uh, playing for Italy in the World Cup. They were losing to Cremonese. They lost to Alexi Lalas led Padua. They lost to some pretty bad teams along the way. Uh, they were docked two points in their group for an incident in their uh, home match in the second uh, match day two against uh, Casino Salzburg. You know, so there was a lot of negatives and it was just a downtime all the way up. And what culminated was losing the World Club Cup to the LS Sarsfield. Then, spring, then the 1995 rolls around. Uh, they win the European Super Cup. And back then it was played in February. It was over two legs. They beat Arsenal. 
they started to get back into the ascendancy. You know, Hullet went back to Sampdoria. Capello mixed some things up, made some effective changes. They eliminated Benfica uh, in the quarterfinals of Benfica that had performed very well in the group stage. Uh, in the semifinals, they knocked out Paris Saint-Germain, a team that was led by uh, George Weah and uh, Davi Ginola. And for me, why I had such a positive feeling that Milan would beat Ajax in that final was, first of all, Ajax had beaten Milan twice in the group stage. This Milan team is too veteran to be beaten three times in a row by, 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 by such a young team. And then uh, just the emergence of Dejan Savicevic and how he had performed in the quarterfinals and then the semifinals. And then the heartbreak when learning that he wasn't going to play in the final uh, because of a uh, thigh strain and, and was, was too much for him to be able to play in the final, which was a blow to, to Milan's hopes to not have that creative force. And Milan had to go to a 4-4-2 with basically two nines with, with Daniele Massaro and Marco Simone. What's further disappointing about this is that that first half from Milan was just a brilliant performance and could have been 2 or 3-0 ahead by halftime. Panu- Christian Panucci had a chance that just went over to the top of the roof of the goal. Uh, Desai, I think, on a, on a set piece, barely missed one as well. And then just minutes before halftime, I started celebrating because Roberto Dondadoni plays in an early cross. Marco Simone with this just wicked side volley out of the air. I, you know, I'm celebrating thinking it's a goal. Next thing I do, I look at the TV screen and I see that I actually taken a goal kick. And they show the replay. And I, I still to this day don't know how Edwin van der Sar made that save. And, and for me, is one of the greatest saves I've ever seen. Capello didn't adjust or he probably felt it, it looked like Milan just kind of emptied the tank trying to win the game in the first half because the second half they just weren't the same team. Angal made some great adjustments. He brought on Kanu. He brought on Cliver, who ended up scoring the goal with about five minutes left in the match. You know, and at that point, prior to that goal, it was like, okay, this can get this can limp to extra time into penalties. I, I like the veteran team's chances in that situation, but it never got to that because of the Clivert goal, one that I still thought Rossi still could have gotten down and saved. So there's a whole bunch of things that led to this being the most disappointing experience I have had, uh, you know, as a football supporter uh, in my in my 30 years of. Uh, 30 plus years of following the sport. I think for me, you know, just given the stature of the Milan team at that particular era, Andy, you, you know, would you agree with me? You know, I, I love the fact that like I actually the new kids in the block who were fresh, they were quite hipster at the time, I suppose. And, and I suppose that's why I enjoyed this one so much. And sorry, Frank, what, what, what about your memories of it? Uh, my memories are pretty vivid <laughs> of around that time. Um, I, I do remember them breaking through and, and then so many of that Ajax team just went on to be stars well, all over the globe. I mean, a few of them went on to AC Milan themselves. It wasn't wasn't Sadov in that uh, in that Ajax team. Sadov was in that Ajax team. Reichert was in yeah. that Ajax team. Interestingly enough, too. Yeah, I'd, I'd gone back. I'd gone he, he, by then. He 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 was the old man of the team. Yeah, nurturing the young players. Yeah, so I mean, they say vividly recall it. And and yeah, and the, there was a lot of buzz around at the time as well. There's some you know this emerging team, and then the whole connection of Ajax with with Cruyff obviously back in the 70s and the great team that they had then and uh, and that kind of excitement that it was you know that this was the second coming of Ajax and I suppose at any time even now that Ajax look like they're starting to put a bit of a team together everyone starts going back to not only to Cruyff but also to that era in the mid-90s when they had such a superb uh, team uh, Burkamp being there as well, as, as I recall. So they had Finiti George, the Nigerian. They had Litmanen. They had uh, the De Boer Oh, twins. Yari Litmanen, what a player! Yeah, let me let me ask you guys this: <laughs> Had it not been for Bosman, how many uh, Champions Leagues do you think that Ajax team could have won? Oh, that's a question. 
I, don't, I, I reckon they would have been stripped down anyway, Frank. You know, football was moving yeah. in that direction by the 90s and so on. I honestly think, you know, we, we see it today, the likes of a Monaco. We see it, you know, at Leipzig at the minute. Everybody wants their players. They've had one good season. And, you know, the asset strippers, as I call them, come in and, and just do away with your team. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think regardless of Bosman, I think that Ajax team, and, and that's no offense to Ajax, they're a, they're a big club. But at that particular moment in time, like the likes of your Milans, the likes of Italian football was at its peak. Serie A was huge at that point, wasn't it? I mean, that at that time, Serie A was like La Liga now with, with Real Madrid and Barcelona. When Serie A came calling, that's where the best players in the world went. And it wasn't just the two teams either, Andy. You know, there was, you know, my God, we had Maradona, uh, uh, you know, in Napoli. And, you know, we had Batistuta, who, who stayed a remarkable yeah. length of time. At an yeah, uh, you know what an unfashionable club, so to speak. Uh, but but they, they all had the best players in the world. Maybe not lit- their teams weren't littered with them, but they had one or two complete and utter world beaters in every team there. And you know, I I remember the Sampdoria of of the the nineties as well, where were a magnificent team. Uh, you know, one or two complete and utter outstanding individuals, but there was a real good sort of core of a team around them. And that was Italian football throughout the 90s for me. That's the type of teams you came up against, and they were terrifying prospects. I have nothing against that Ajax team. They were fun to watch. They just weren't fun to watch when they played Milan. So... <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Well, here, let, let's let's drag you forward and do a positive, and we'll, we'll, we'll take you... Uh, well, a year before when you won uh, the Champions League final 4-0 against uh, Barcelona. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk us through this one then, Frank? This was the last year when we had to get uh, here in the United States, when we had to get, you know, the European Cup final or, or the Champions League final on, on pay-per-view. You know? <laughs> so that's the first thing I had to order it on pay-per-view. $15 to pay for it, which, you know, at the time being a college student, $15 went a long way at the bar <laughs> to drink underage with your friends. Nonetheless, I... I wanted, to, I wanted to see the game. I wanted to see the final. That just was me as a Milan fan. They were going into the final against Johan Cruyff's dream team with Romario and Stoichkov up front. They've got uh, Ronald Koeman. Uh, they've got uh, wonderful, uh, uh, ta- talented uh, Spanish players in that team as well. And Milan were going into this without Franco Baresi and without Alessandro Costa-Curta. Uh, and obviously without Marco Van Basten, whose ankle was just shredded by then. Began watching with fingers crossed. And uh, it was a tactical masterclass. And I know that those words just kind of get thrown around sometimes. But in case that, in this case, it was. If you go to the video on UEFA.com where you know, Fabio Capello was managing the Milan team that won, he said it was uh, uh, there was one guy that they let have the ball. Everybody else they put pressure on. And one guy they let have the ball because they didn't have to worry about him. He wasn't very accurate as a passer. Trying to do the right back for uh, Barcelona at the time. And I want to say it was Ferrer. But anyway, that's what they noticed, and that's what they saw. So they structured things, and then they hit on the break. And then most notably, it was Milan's right side and Barcelona's left side that they exploited. Massaro scored twice to put him up 2-0. Dejan Savicevic really was uh, the orchestrator of a lot of what was going on and how, how Milan were creating their chances. And then the third goal uh, in that final done by him, for me, is one of the three great goal, one of the three greatest goals scored in a Champions League final. Behind one, Zidane's goal against Leverkusen, and then two, the uh, as a consolation, the goal that he went to score in this year's final. But it's 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 up there among one of the great goals ever to be scored in the final. Looping ball, look it up on YouTube, and then uh, Desai sealing it off. And it was just that it, it was jubilation because they weren't supposed to beat that Barcelona team in that '94 final for starters without the players that they without the players that they weren't going to have. And then number two, to beat them four 0 
simply just beyond my ma- my imagination and just one of the great memories I have of uh, of watching football. The, that was the uh, that was the famed dream team, and and I know Pep Guardiola. You know when he looks back on his career, talks about you know it, it was so special to him being a part of that team and, and surrounded by people like Hadji and Stoichkov and Kuman, uh, yep. Nadal. Uh, remember him? Yeah, beast it of was, Barcelona. He, the beast of Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, you know th- this. This was uh, and obviously and Romario in th- that team as well. Bagiristan, you know that th- they had some phenomenal players and they were a phenomenal team and, and they were tearing it up. I mean, they won they won the European Cup um, a couple of years earlier, didn't they? Ninety two, I believe it was. Yeah, they beat Sampdoria. Um, and and Guardiola had been to the Olympics in ninety two and. You know, he was. Th- that was this thing. You know, that this team that was it was under Cruyff. It was playing his football. That they were absolutely sensational. They they were a sensational team to beat them, and not just beat them, but to you know dismiss them almost in football in terms so calculated and and so comfortably. When you look at the scoreline, uh, that's it, it's it's one of the most impressive performances of European Cup finals, to my money. Frank, a question for you. You know, that, that 4-0 scoreline, is that what sets it apart? You, you know what I mean? These are two great teams. There's no two, no taking away from, from either one of them. You look down the team sheets, my goodness, the names, um, and, and, and even the names that went on to, to be decent managers at the same time, um, and great managers if you take Guardiola into, into consideration. Is it the manner of, of, of the victory that that's make, stands it apart? Absolutely. I mean, it's not just the four. I mean, it's it's Barcelona with the zero. I mean, you kept, at the time, two of the greatest strikers in the world out of your goal without two of your best defenders. And uh, let's not forget, Marcel Desai wasn't a center back in, in, in that Milan setup. He was a midfielder. They had to patch that back line together uh, in order to make it work. I think it was one of the few times I want to say that Maldini was playing as a center back well before he shifted to being a center back in the latter stages of his career. I mean, they were just that they were just that thin at the back going into that game. You know, the goals on the other end getting scored is one thing and, and scoring four goals on them, but to that attack and, and the players and the names that Andy just ran off and to to keep them without scoring a goal really says something about the the team effort and the team uh, performance uh, that night in Athens. No, indeed. Well, listen, let's let's drag it forward into another negative because Andy and I do love the old negatives. <laughs> Particularly if you've got someone to slag off, we 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 do rather indulge in that. I can't promise you that now because again, two <laughs> really really good teams that that played out the uh, Euro two thousand final. It was France two, Italy one. Obviously, Frank with with the Italian side there. This was really the, you know France's golden age, really. That was still the majority of that team that had won uh, the World Cup in '98. But the, the Italians ran them close. I'm an American, but I'm also I'm an Italian. So when it comes to and and here in here in the states, if you're you know, if you're German American and you're watching European competition, you're pulling for Germany, etc. So for me, when it comes to these major internationals, I'm not following the United States. I'm I'm following Italy, and to be just seconds away from beating the world champions and winning a major competition, uh, you know, for the first time in 18 years, was just uh, was just a kick in the gut. We were just uh, we were in our housemates, we were watching with my mom, watching with my brother. We had a couple of friends over. We were enjoying it. We were, you had the goal from Del Vecchio, and then you had the two sitters for Del Piero that he missed. Uh, he had come on for Francesco Totti, who had had a phenomenal tournament. But it was, and I've said this in our Serie A pods, that 
you know, there's a there was a habit through the 90s and the early 2000s of Italy managers having to shove Del Piero down our throats because he was the golden boy. Uh, he missed two sitters in a final. You know, would Totti have finished him? I don't know. Uh, but the game should have been put away prior to that last long, desperate kick of the ball in stoppage time in the second half. And uh, had Fabio, Fabio Cannavaro been about a half inch taller, he would have headed that ball clear. And it just barely sails over his head and it falls to Viltord, who, who put it away well. And uh, send the game into extra time. And, you know, France just had a viciously aggressive formation by then and just stuck with it because they were out of substitutes. And then Trezeguet to score the goal uh, at extra time. I think you just, in the space of 15 minutes, you're going from joy to just crushing heartbreak uh, for a team that you support. Well, you know, I, I had actually a soft spot for Italy. No, not so much for Italy, but due to their manager, because Dino Zoff is, is, to me, is the greatest goalkeeper. I know that a lot of you guys think Buffon is, is, the, is the last word, but before there was Buffon, there was Dino Zoff, and I, I used to love mm. Dino Zoff. Um, he was he was just the best goalkeeper I think I ever saw, and, and for that reason, I, I really wanted him to succeed in in this tournament. But Andy, you know, when, when you look at that France team and say the, the the you know the remains of that great team two years earlier that lifted the World Cup, and that that was a great team. Zidane still in his pomp, you know, the, the, it was a really good final. Two really good teams. It, it was. Uh, I was. It just. I, I was. I was trying to sort of recall, and I was thinking. I'm pretty sure wasn't that the one where Trezeguet scores the winner? That the guy who was either world class or he was Sunday League, mm-hmm. and it, and it, so I, I just got it back up, and yeah, it was yeah Trezeguet with the with the winner in injury in uh, extra time, and yeah, it must have been gut wrenching, you know, to to be on the verge of it, you know, you think you've done it, you've won. To then, you know, the the equaliser in injury time, and then that's it. But yeah, you look through that France team, and it was, I mean, it's still a phenomenal team. But it wasn't just, you know, a first eleven. It it was what they had available to bring on off the bench as well, and yeah. and they they were pretty sensational. And yeah, Zidane was at his pomp. It just one of the best players I've ever I've ever clapped eyes on. Uh, Yuri Jokaev, another. One of them plays who I loved watching. I, I really, really enjoyed Jokiev and and Patrick Vieira, who f- for me is is the best central midfielder I've ever seen in the English Premier League. I, I thought he he was a tremendous player. There's just that's it. You look through that front side, and that is that's a hell of a side. Yeah, and then you're and you're on the verge of beating them. But then you, you look through that Italy side, and it's not star studded. It's certainly not. Um, at the level of some of the previous Italian teams, and this seems to be a bit of a, a thing with with Italy. You know, it's they don't necessarily on paper have, you know, what looks like the best team. Certainly over the last sort of fifteen years, but it was the tactics. But they just Andy, seem to have. Know, they were all, yeah, they just have a way, don't they? It was, it was the same in '82. On paper, they wouldn't have been probably one of the tournament favorites. Brazil were magnificent, but. That, that you know that Italian team of 1982 changed the way football was played forever, because everyone wanted that Brazil team to win in '82, and Brazil wanted to win. A draw would have done them in that game when they played it and lost three-two. And it was when the penny dropped in, in the football world that tactics were actually a thing of of value, as as opposed to this wonderful expansive football and you know we'll just score more than you. Uh, it was where tactics, I think really came in and it was Italy and then you know it was only like a short space of time eight eight years later that Italy were just in their league Serie A 
it was a tactical masterclass. I used to watch some nil nils and come away from them as as joyous as I would um, a six nil in the Premier League because they were just tactical masterclasses and they translated that into their national team and they never needed the best players in the world to compete because they played with their head. They make they they make defending look beautiful. Just pr- I mean the semi final they eliminated Holland on penalty kicks and the and and the world wanted a France Holland final at this Euro two thousand. You know, to your point about 1982, 2000 was this resurgence of attacking football. The Italians, you know, it was it was, it was funny. Alan Hansen had said it. He said, you know, in the in the tournament full of it attacking football, the Italians have come to town. <laughs> you know, when he was talking about the first half against Holland, because uh, there was an early Zambrotta had got a yellow, and then he had gotten a stupid yellow about ten minutes before halftime, and Italy said playing the host nation and we're a man down. We're just going to sit back and we're going to defend. And this is because we're going to, this is what we're good at. And if you can break us down, congratulations. Otherwise we're going to penalties, you know, and when you watch that and I came away with that talking to some friends, you know, the next day and they just say disappointed with how that game turned out. I really wanted to see Holland in the final, but man, the Italians know how to defend. Yeah. The Italians certainly know how to defend. And uh, yeah, Maldini, Nesta, Cannavaro in, in that side. Yeah. The, the, Amongst the best of the the modern era, it's only Maldini, what just arguably the best the best ever left back the the, the game seen, or, or arguably the best defender the game's ever seen, a sensational player. And Albertini, just looking at Albertini, was in that yep. uh, Italian team as well. He was just one of them players I liked. Albertini, uh, Albertini for me, you know, before Pirlo there was Albertini. It's just it's amazing. Everybody talks about Andrea Pirlo, uh, you know, and what he's done, but uh, Albertini was that type of player before Pirlo jumped onto the scene. And it just wasn't as appreciated, largely because he didn't win as much. And, you know, and he was on some Milan teams there in the mid to mid to late 90s that were, you know, that were struggling and that were not as good. So he, you know, certainly not as recognized as an Andrea Pirlo. But to your point, yeah, excellent player. Let, let's move the clock forward uh, six years uh, to another positive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, well, we may have lost the Euro final, but we Italy win uh, the World Cup in 2006. Much I, I could add to the disgust, I think, of the German nation who who, <laughs> who felt, I think, a little bit robbed still to this day. Um, and, and, you know, I, I remember we did a, a pod recently, um, uh, you know, a, a World Cup review of 2006. And from a German perspective, it, it, it still seems to be a sore point that actually Italy won their World Cup. But, you know, Cannavaro in that tournament for me was was just standout for Italy. He, he was magnificent. It's, you know, I think he, he won the Ballon d'Or on the back of that, and, and rightly so. And it's, it's such a rare occasion we see in, in, in the modern era of football that, that a defender can actually win that honour. But, you know, to me, I, I, I loved the World Cup in 2006, and I have absolutely no complaints with Italy winning it. For me, as far as major international tournaments go, it was one of the complete team performances uh, that you would see from start to finish in a tournament. You look at their defending and you look, you know, we, we just talked about Italy. They can defend, right? They conceded two goals the entire comp, you know, in the run of, in, in the entire competition against the United States. And it was an own goal by Zicardo. And then in the final, uh, Zidane's Panenka. So, and that, that own goal came off of a set piece. In the run of play in that tournament, Italy didn't concede a goal. It, you know, they, they gave up an own goal on a set piece and they gave up a penalty. <laughs> it just tells you the team performance. And then flip it over to the attacking end. There's not one player who scored more than two goals. You know, there wasn't a golden boot winner. There wasn't one man that this guy had to be the man and he had to play at his best for this team to be able to go on and win it. It was a, a team performance all the way through. Uh, and that's what makes me appreciate this, uh, this World Cup win. 
Well, what's your opinion on on the, the Zidane sending? You know, obviously he had the go and everything. But I always, for for me, that was just such a sour moment for a career of of of, of a legend of this game that that, that that I see it anyhow. Zidane really is. I'm sure you would agree with me, Andy. It was a terrible way for him to go and a terrible way to end what was a pretty good World Cup. Yeah, it was a sad way for such an, an unbelievable player to, to end his career. But, I mean, it's a bit cliched, but, you know, Zidane always had that bit of edge in him. And it's kind of funny, you know, it was at the uh, early early on in the pod, Frank was talking about Matarazzi, you know, and his disliking of him. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. It's, if, uh, it's Matarazzi that gets him sent off, and it's yeah. If, it's, if, um, if Zidane, if he was going to headbutt somebody, I'm glad it was Matarazzi. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, so, it, was so, it was a headbutt to the chest. You know, like let's get it right. <laughs> but, I mean, I'll I'll give you my rea- Let me give you my reaction to that because Zidane was one of my favorite players I ever watched. He's in my pieces of me team, and I was actually as as someone that was cheering for Italy. I was actually heartbroken when it happened. My wife and I we were dating at the time. She was watching the final with me. I said to her, I said, one of the greatest to ever play the game, and this is going to be his last moment on the pitch. This is this is incredible. Do you think it soured the victory for Italy in any way? Would you have preferred to have won the game with him on the pitch and with you know beating a full 11? Do you think that that's somewhat... I've heard people say this in the past. Oh, you know, well, they won the penalty shootout, but, you know, France were down to 10 men, they were out in their feet. You know, I don't think that sours it in any way to me. No, it doesn't. And I, you know, and like I said, for a second, for a second, I was saying, I now, you know, I'm, I'm, I was actually... For a while there, I was disappointed to the point where I don't know how I'm going to react when Italy wins. If Italy wins, you know, I reacted as you would expect. <laughs> I actually cried. Uh, I was so happy. Um, but you know, while I was so disappointed that that's the last action, that's the last thing I'm going to be see from Zinedine Zidane. You also kind of come to come to some senses, and and it's 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 the cliche, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So um, if you're going to engage in that kind of behavior. Except the consequences. It's just so sad that it's it, it just it, it's sad that it happened to a guy like Zidane. Yeah, I was gonna say that this is almost two positive and positives in one for them. It was you know re- revenge for Euro two thousand by yep. beating that that same you know this, that same team and and also Matarazzi getting headbutted. <laughs> you know, like I said, I mean the, the overall tournament, Italy, the team performance from them, and then obviously uh, going on and winning the final, you know, winning on penalties. Also sweet justice that who missed the penalty for France? David Trezeguet, the man who scored the winner in Euro 2000. It, it, there, there, there's a little bit of a full Exercising circle. Exercising kind of ghosts, I think, is the best way of describing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just interesting, uh, you know, just interesting in that respect. It just kind of, you know, it just kind of came around. You know, you're not going yeah, to be a hero. There's no pleasure like sadistic pleasure. <laughs> So Frank, talking about sadistic pleasure, this is this is one for Andy and I. So 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 cue the music, Andy. We're we're going to talk about a negative here that that we won Liverpool won the two thousand and five Champions League as a negative. A negative. A negative. Are you sure this is a negative? No, I'd say it's a l- massive l- positive. L- listen to this music. You know, it just <laughs> takes me back. It takes me back to one of the greatest nights I've ever uh, of my life in sport, Andy. Well, what does it do for you? Oh, the hairs on my arm stand up on end every single time without fail. I just can't understand how this can in any way be 
a negative. No, and, and for, for, like for, obviously, Frank, you're going to tell us from a Milan fan's point of view the negatives of this because I, from a, even from Milan's fa- fan's point of view, I don't see a negative. You you saw your team win a game beyond, beyond doubt, and we lifted the cup. <laughs> Talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> I did joke. I did joke on the pieces of meat pod with Ali. I told him, I said, you know, all we saw in the United States was those forty-five minutes. So we assumed slaughter. We, we assumed slaughter rule, and they gave the cup to Milan. And Milan really had eight. But uh, uh, no, I unfortunately that second half did happen. Kaká was phenomenal uh, in particular, and I think Crespo had two of the goals. Maldini scored uh, right off the bat. This isn't my most negative moment, you know, because of the you know the two ahead of them, and and the reason for me as a Milan fan is. Was it because Milan you half might, won it? <laughs> was that well, you sort of half won not, it? Not, not necessarily half won it, but if you kind of look leading up to that final, Milan were lucky to be there. I mean, they're playing with house money. The semifinal against PSV Eindhoven, it took a very, very late goal uh, from Massimo Ambrosini in the second leg uh, in Holland for Milan to get to this final and, and Milan to go through on away goals. You know, so that you know, so for starters, it could have been, it could have very well been Liverpool and PSV in the final, and I'm not even talking about 2005. So Milan are you know, they're in the final of house money, uh, and then they go ahead three 0 at halftime. But this is a, you know, a Milan that was aging on their back line. They had Maldini was getting older. They had Yapstan playing back there. They had um, they had Dita and Goal who could be, uh, you know, who could certainly. Uh, do enough to make you cringe as a Milan supporter. Uh, you know, there were games where he, were, he was great, and there were games where you wondered what the hell he was doing. And just the season before, uh, they go out in the uh, uh, quarterfinals uh, to Deportivo after being up 3-0 in the first leg, and Deportivo came back uh, and beat them 4-0 in the second leg. So this was during a time where disappointing as, as something like this game was, it wasn't terribly surprising, and unfortunately, it wasn't really unusual for Milan. It was a simple matter of uh, Milan thought they could just coast in the second half of the game, and Benitez said, you know what, we're going to figure out how to get back in this game. And to Liverpool's credit, they did. Disappointed that, that, that a veteran team allows that to happen. Disappointed that Shevchenko misses an absolute sitter in the 120th minute. I'm sure you guys were this relieved. Is, I thought that was an amazing <laughs> save. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the best <laughs> saves I ever saw in my life. <laughs> I think, you know, enough happened getting to that final where – it was like, okay, Milan are there, but it's not terribly comfortable. You know, it's it's still not terribly comfortable. And even, you know, 3-0 at halftime in most, you know, in, in just about all cases. And even at halftime, I said, yeah, this, this this thing should be over. They'll, you know, Liverpool will make a charge. But, you know, to for them to, to go out and get it to 3-3 with 30 minutes to go in the second half is, you know, was just... I was more in shock than but, well, angry about it. I'm curious, Frank, you know, f- from a Milan fan's point of view, because I've never actually spoken to a Milan fan about this, actually. At what point did you did you realise, shit, we are in trouble here? Was it was it the Gerrard goal? Was, was it the second goal? Was, uh, for me, I think, I have a very clear recollection of this game. Um, my son was actually playing football, um, football training that night, and I used to go Champions League halftime. I always went and picked him up, and I literally fr- got him by the scruff of the neck and frog marched him to the car because I didn't want to miss anything, even though we were three 0 <laughs> down. He was near in tears whenever I told him we were three 0 down. But the oh minute, gosh. the minute that Gerard scored, something changed in that stadium. It was like, I, I, it's a really, really, and it was a belief 
that, that just seemed to come out. And, you know, John Henderson, who does a Copcast pod with me as well there, at halftime he was texting me, Dave, believe. And I go, catch a grip of yourself. We're 3-0 down. They're they're superb. You know, like look at the squad. Like, Andy, I'll let you in on this. The squad that we had compared to the Milan squad, you know, Milan Barros, um, Igor Bishkan, uh, what do you call that? Oh, Jimmy Traore. Jimmy, Jimmy Traore, the left back. Oh, Jesus. He has a Champions League winner's medal. Harry <laughs> Kewell, who got a mention last week. Yes, who who hobbled off but managed to run the length of the pitch four times when we won it. Yes, all those those classic moments. But <laughs> you know, it, it, It's just one of those, you know, from our point of view, like it, it's it's folklore. But for a Milan fan, it must be. like If it happened to us, we wouldn't be happy. You, you know, you, you go on through that Milan team and I remember looking at that Milan team and gulping. And thinking, yeah, oh Jesus! <laughs> because yeah, because I looked honestly, I looked at that team and I thought the only weakness is the goalkeeper. That's the only weakness in that team. That's the only area that I I feel that we could get at. The rest of it is just you know even even though yeah you could say that the veterans, but that just meant they were experienced and they knew what they were doing. They knew how to win. They knew how to see things out. Uh, it was just. And Crespo in that game, you know, he's finishing that that second goal. Just some sensational, you know, player. And and Kaká in the first half was running the game. He was a fabulous player at the time. It was daunting before the game, and I remember being on the verge of tears at half time, questioning whether I should actually watch the second half. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm curious to see to uh, to hear how it felt, you know, with the, the boot being on the other foot, going from how you felt at halftime to, to how that felt sort of midway through the second half. I mean, at halftime, we're already talking about, all right, uh, back on top, Kings of Europe again, <laughs> you know, uh, to then just watching things. It was it was not Gerard's goal, but it was Smith's goal right after that. And I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that this comeback happens if that second goal doesn't, if Smith's goal doesn't uh, doesn't happen. I mean, would you guys agree with that? I mean, at the time, you know, when Gerard scored, you're just like, okay, you you knew they were coming, you knew they were going to get one, but yeah, the experience is there to the, the experience is there to fight them off, and then Smith yeah. scores, and you're like, uh oh, oh, yeah. this is a game now, and then Alonso scores in the 60th minute, um, and you're like, a I rebound think, as well, like it wasn't even a clean yeah. penalty, it was the rebound, it was everything about yeah. it was scrappy. Yeah, I'm just, I was watching it myself, and I'm just, I'm not sure if. I, I stunned more than anything, you know, the, the, the game plays out. And when I knew, when I, when I thought for sure that we lost it was the Shevchenko miss I was telling you guys about earlier. So I was already braced for defeat before the penalties were getting ready to be even be taken. And I said, if, if the best striker in the world at the time, or one of the best strikers in the world at the time can't score one as easy as that, uh, Milan aren't winning this champions league. <laughs> so I said, I don't even know if I have to watch the penalties. I did. Uh, it was, you know, it was just kind of a, what just happened? <laughs> did that all, did that all just happen? You know, there's, there, there's 45 minutes of bliss and now there's 60 plus minutes of agony. It's just, it's, it's, it's perplexing, but you know, my perspective in the history of, of negative moments that I've been through, you know, there was kind of a, you know, the comeback from Liverpool to make it three, three. And then the Shevchenko miss, you know, things were adding up where you're already bracing yourself for disappointment, where, when Ajax beat Milan in, in, in 95, they did it with four minutes left, you know, after, you know, Milan had controlled the game. You know, France, in the dying seconds, you know, equalized that game in 2000 and then went on to win it in extra time. So, 
you know, things just happen just right at the end where you're just where you're just gut punched. This was kind of more of a, you know, slow death. And the more it was going on, the more you were prepared for disappointment and the more you were prepared for the the fact that Milan's not lifting that trophy after this game. That's at least my perspective of it. Another Milan fan might have something totally different from me. And uh, Richard, who I do this with, do the Serie A pod with, is a Milan fan. And I know that he has just, he he thinks of 2005 in disgust. So, Have you got any more uh, negatives like this? Because this is fantastic. (laughs) I think this is the best negative we've had ever, Andy, in this show. (laughs) Nothing where... (laughs) The most positive negative ever. Nothing where Liverpool's on the happy end. <laughs> you know, I, I can say this was the perfect result. Maldini scores, Liverpool wins. I, I, I won every direction with this one because, you know, I, I, I love the fact Maldini scores and yet we still win because I was saying, I, just, I just love Maldini. But listen, let, let, let's move forward um, again and we'll, we'll move back to Euro 2000 as a tournament. And it's funny because recently we had um, Euro 96. I think Simon Edwards did Euro 96 as as a tournament as one of his, as his positives. It's Euro 2000. Was a, don't get me wrong, it was a great tournament, but I still think that 96 was, maybe maybe it's just a little bit of bias because it was within the UK, um, and, you know, I'll say it was being played in stadiums that we're so familiar with and so on. And What, what makes 2000 stand out for, for you so much, Frank? It was the first international tournament that I got to watch. and had to order it, uh, had to order a package on pay-per-view where you would have every game, but the you know, the broadcasters were, uh, you know, they, they'd flip-flop between. It was Satanta Sports, and then it was BBC and ITV. So we had the the commentators for those games. We had the pundits for those games. Where prior to that, um, you know, we had, you know, ESPN and, you know, God bless them, uh, uh, you know, American quote-unquote pundits, that the game was trying to grow in the United States. And so pundits and you know, and presenters in that were behaving and presented, presenting football to us like we were all children, like we were being introduced to it and giving us, you know, simple discussion on what was going on in the game, you know, and all this other stuff. So this was the first time where not only did I, you know, watch what I thought was one of my, you know, certainly my favorite international tournament, despite what happened in the final, you know, the, the commentary along the way, I got an education, you know, I got a real education on the game. You know, whether it was, uh, you know, I think it was Gary Lineker with Alan Hansen and, oh gosh, there's one or two other, one or two others in there. And then you had Des Lynham with the, uh, you know, with the other group, you had John Motson calling games, you know, the, it was a lot more, it was a lot more pure to me than what I was getting from the likes of ESPN or anything like that. And I don't want to, you know, put a, I don't want to slight, you know, you know, my fellow countrymen and the, and the, and the job that they do and the efforts that they make. But at that time I, you know, I played and I had coached, I wanted something, I wanted something more from what I was viewing and I was getting it from that. And then you combine that with the fact you had Zinedine Zidane on the top of his game. You had a host nation, one of the host nations, Holland, just, just, I mean, the six, one game against Yugoslavia was just bliss. You, you, you watched that for 90 minutes and just weren't, weren't bored at all. Uh, the Spain-Yugoslavia game uh, from the group stage, the 4-3, uh, one of the great, one of the best international games I've ever seen. Uh, you know, Italy's run, you know, through that competition, uh, beating Belgium, who was the other co-host, uh, you know, and then <laughs> boring the rest of the world to tears uh, in the semifinal against Holland, except me. Portugal being a real revelation in that tournament with Rui Costa, with Figo, with, with João Pinto, just it was the first time to watch a tournament from start to finish where all 16 teams 
had quality to them, you know, and, and in most cases performed accordingly. You know, England underachieved a little bit, didn't make it out of the group, uh, you know, in that in that competition. Uh, Germany were terrible. Um, and it's, I've got German friends. They're not going to like hearing this, but I also like an international tournament where Germany's terrible. <laughs> so it's the last time. I think it's one of the last times Germany was bad in, a, in an international uh, in an international tournament. But, uh, you know, just everything you had Zidane for, you had Zidane for France. You had, you know, you had Clivert, Overmars, Davids, uh, you know, the collection of talent Bergkamp for, uh, for Holland. You know, the names uh, over at Portugal. You had a collection of world-class players that were in their prime uh, at that time. And it was just a, it was a perfect storm. And the, the quality of football, uh, you know, from the Sweden-Belgium game all the way to the last kick of the final was just exceptional. So Andy, who put England out, out, out of this tournament? Talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Romania. <laughs> Phil Neville. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I, I do recall this tournament. I actually, I was still watching England as a fan by, at that point. And I do recall going out to, uh, to a club for all three games, watching them, and and it was dire. Even the games I won, it was absolutely dire. And there were a, uh, <laughs> there was yeah, there there was a lack of uh, there was quality, but there was there wasn't. You know, you talked about like the Italian teams and how tactically smart they were and how they could defend. And and even when on paper they didn't have the best collection of players, they still know how to get it done, and they can still win. And even if they don't win tournaments, they can, they can still win games. They can still get themselves through to the latter stages and be in contention. And and this was something that you know you looked at that England team on paper, and there were some good players there, but they never had the smarts to to be able to get through to the latter stages of tournaments like this. And it was um, it, it was yet another disappointment in the the long. Back catalogue of disappointments for but England you beat the when Germans. it comes to you, you, you managed to oh, yeah. beat the, ter- the Germans this time, and, and you this, still bug- yeah. balls it up like. <laughs> well, it was <laughs> maybe it's a, a reflection of just how bad um, Germany must have been. Then you know to to lose to England at that point, that was it. Germany tore up the, the everything and and completely redesigned their their entire infrastructure so this this tournament itself was a watershed moment for, in for german football and it's ne- you know it's 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 never been quite the same since when you look at how their league is run and the way it's structured and the clubs uh, and the the academies and everything else and the success that they've had over the last 10 years since they've done that so this this tournament has certainly had its influence beyond you know the teams that did well and, and went through. It was a good tournament. It, I've got to say, '96 was certainly more favourable to me. Uh, maybe it's because it was here. You know, it was on, it was on my doorstep, and it, I felt a part of it. It, it was sensational. But yeah, 2000 had its moments, and it had some great players playing there. Uh, I remember as well at the time, you know, for Spain, Raúl. At that point, Raúl was was just an unbelievable player. No, and, and you know what? I find it very interesting. You know, th- this was sort of that we had what we had Norway, we had Sweden, and we had Denmark. All these Scandinavian countries. It was it was the time that you know that these Scandinavian countries were 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 really you know punching really above their weight historically in football, and you know to have three of them because it was difficult. 
you know, the Euros were always a, a difficult qualification, given the fact that it was always limited spots before it sort of opened up. We're talking, you know, I think it was only 16 teams back then. And, you know, it was difficult to qualify. And to see those three Scandinavian teams there, you, you know, you remember, like, you know, you remember Denmark winning it um, as well. And, you know, Sweden and, and Norway, you know, came from nowhere to be really, really good teams. And, and then they seem to have just fallen off, off again in terms of international football. But it was a really sort of, the old Yugoslavia in there as well. You know, it was a really sort of strange mixture of qualified or qualified teams in this one, Andy. Yeah, there, there was quite a strange demographic, but that was a time as well. You know, Turkey were doing well. You know, they were up and down. I mean, I, I could still recall a time when Turkey used to get regularly big, you know, six, seven, eight nil. And then all of a sudden, Turkey developed some really good players and put themselves, you know, put a good team together. And then they had a run of, you know, doing quite well in tournaments. And then all of a sudden they fall, fall away again. And it's, it was probably sort of the, the last era as well, where Romania were in, in the mix and this, you know, beyond the era of, of Hadji and, and some of the sensational plays that they had in the 94 world cup. Turkey was in the last eight in Euro 2000. And then they followed it up with finishing third at the 2002 world cup. So they did have a little bit of a, yeah, they did have a little bit of a run, and then they, I think, was it a little bit later on? Was it 2008 that they reached the last? I want to say it was the last eight. Was that the tournament that was in? Yeah, that was the tournament that was in Austria and Switzerland. So yeah, um, so yeah, they've had they've they have to your point, Andy. They've had some good players come through. Frank, what what was your what was your standout moment? Obviously, you know, we've talked about the final, um, you know, and and you've also said that this is really the first tournament you got to watch proper, you know. Going away from that, what what are, what are the the everlasting memories that you hold on to from it? Spain four, Yugoslavia three. Spain are three two down, and they're down and out. And it looks like Yugoslavia and Norway are going to go through uh, in that in that group. And then uh, uh, there's a, I think ninety second minute. There's a penalty. Spain score it, and then the uh, uh, the goal from Alfonso just at the death uh, to win the match for Spain. Uh, I want to say that that was Pep Guardiola, in fact, who had played that long, who had, who had played the long ball in that led to Alfonso scoring. Like I said, the Dutch beating Yugoslavia just after that six to one was uh, just mesmerizing. Uh, you know, as a fan of Italy watching that game, it's like, how the how the hell are Italy going to beat these guys? <laughs> Leading into that, because that was Italy's semifinal opponent. Um, you know, the 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 um, the the, uh, the volley goal from Overmars in that game, uh, Clivert's goals in that game. And just about anything Zidane did in that tournament. You know, he's impressive in 98 in the World Cup. I thought he might have even been better in 2000. Uh, the free kick against Spain. Uh, you know, some of the things that he did in the group phase. He was at the top, you know, one of the best players I ever saw at the top of his game in, the, at the top of his game in that tournament. And I'd, I'd say, you know, aside from everything Italy did, you know, those are the three those are the three things that I take the most from that competition. Well, listen, we're, we, we don't normally end on a negative, but we are going to today. But I'm going to turn it into a positive one because you're, you're going back to the 1994 World Cup in the States, uh, to the final where Brazil beat uh, Italy on penalties. And we had Baggio, who at the time was like standout for Italy. He was, he was magnificent. One of, my, one of my favorite players to watch in the Italian league, who managed to take a worse penalty than even Diana Ross to lose the tournament. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you, you know, I, I think from, from Brazilian's point of view here, you know, I've spoken to a couple of guys about this World Cup and, and, and winning it and so on, and they saw this very much as, as you know, real sort of revenge for that 82 debacle that, that I spoke about 
um, yeah. and, and you know, getting one back over on Italy again after what they did to them in 82. From the Italian point of view, obviously, you know, that, that heartbreak, um, you know, Baggio, like, as I say, Baggio for me is, is just one of those special players. And, and again, yes. he, he didn't deserve to end the world. I, I don't care what you say. I love Brazil winning it, but I just hate to see a player as good as Baggio have him just one of those moments, you know. And, and I don't think he was ever the same again after that, Frank. No, he, he had struggled after that. You know, he had bounced around. He joined Milan uh, and ended up winning a Scudetto there, but then, uh, you know, faded away from that team. And he, he did play in the 98 World Cup. He played reasonably well, but then again, we're, we're getting Del Piero forced on us too. You know, and he was kind of getting to the, to the close of his career. He was 31 for the, for the 98 World Cup. And I remember at, at the time in 94 watching him play, and especially in the knockout stages, I wished he could have played forever. Um, he's just he's one of those guys. You know, let's not forget he played that final and he played 120 minutes on a was it a torn hamstring, either a pulled at least a pulled hamstring. He did it in the semifinal against Bulgaria, and there was all the questions and all the buildup on whether or not he was going to play the final, and he did. Franco Baresi came back for the final. He had he had injured his meniscus in his knee in the in the group game against Norway. He came back for the final. One of the more inspiring players to watch in the game. So, but uh, it was it was. It was negative and it was disappointing in the fact that Baggio put the country on his back and put the team on his back through the, through the round of 16, eliminating Nigeria, scoring the winner against Spain, and then the performance he put on against Bulgaria. You know, to get to the, to get to the final and just not be at 100%, and then even further playing in stoppage time, he looked tired. He looked like he gave everything. Um, so when you think about those things, maybe what he did with his penalty kick shouldn't surprise you. Simone Zaza and... 2006 at the 2016 year olds i think have uh has bailed baggio out as far as the most dubious penalty an italian can ever take you saw italy start to get better as the tournament was going on you saw brazil just playing at such a high level throughout the tournament you thought that there was a chance that italy could do this and they could they could they could win this thing and uh you know just wasn't one of those that wasn't to be and younger guy and, and excited to see italy playing in a world cup final and uh just was was disappointed that they disappointed that they didn't do it and you know in my home country where and i heard uh heard you guess last week and yeah usa 94 was an excellent tournament it was so much fun to so much fun to watch so much fun to see the teams the final itself and negative from it being nil nil uh and uh couldn't get a couldn't get a goal or two out of it italy in a sense kind of played for the played for the penalties and even Brazil was starting to look a little tired as that as that game was going on that game was wearing on the final it really wasn't a they really weren't trying to push the game, you know, to Italy. It kind of felt like watching that, watching those extra 30 minutes, it was like, it, it felt like they were, you know, playing out the stretch, uh, trying to get to the penalties more or less. And then the one thing I'll come back to Baggio on, I remember where he linked up with Massaro, uh, I believe it was Massaro on a one-two, and he got into the penalty area and just decided to shoot 15 yards from goal, and it was just weak, and it was just right into the arms of Tafarel where a fitter Baggio, one that didn't have the hamstring probably, problem, probably would have taken a touch and would have drawn Tafarel out. You could, have, you could tell right from there that too tired, too tired to do anything beyond just try to take an attempted goal from there. I remember that moment in the game. But uh, yeah, just um, uh, disappointed that, uh, disappointed that uh, Italy didn't uh, win that World Cup in 94. Uh, but uh, you know, Brazil was the best team in that tournament and were the deserved winners. But you know, the fan in me uh, you know, left that game disappointed. I don't know. I, I I look at the you know I still look at the teams today and you know like you know Udrigo Sachi is the manager there for Italy. 
on paper, um, you know, I, I would I would still look at those two team sheets and, and give Italy the edge for it. Andy, your memories of the '94. I know I know you enjoyed this particular World Cup. Your your memories of the final. Uh, I was actually in Germany for the final, and that was a beer festival. So we found someone's house to watch it in. So I, I watched the final in a stranger's house, drinking somebody who somebody's beer who I didn't know. And then afterwards, when it was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, never turned down free beer. Uh, and afterwards, when it was all said and done, I remember us driving round looking for Italian fans to antagonise. <laughs> oh dear! So... <laughs> They're the wrong sort. Do you know oh, those Latins are very easy to upset? You know. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, it was it was always from a distance, so we could so we could drive off rather quickly. And notice, I wasn't driving, by the way. I, uh, you know, the, don't drink guy, and drive, folks. But the guy who was driving couldn't see in front of his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the, guy, the guy who was driving didn't appreciate us uh, hanging out the windows chanting uh, Brazil, Brazil at uh, <laughs> some Italian lads as we passed them. <laughs> um, the, the match itself, yeah, the little that I can recall from my drunken stupor, it was a bit disappointing. As, as in terms of, you know, that was the crescendo to what was such an entertaining tournament. It was, I, I absolutely loved that tournament. It's still one of my favourite World Cups. It was fantastic. Everything about it, uh, it was just, it had uh, an element of innocence uh, about it. Yeah, because it was it a was, new world. You know, they were yeah, exploring was, basically, you know, it was a completely yeah. new marketplace in the States. Well, it, it just, something about that, that, you know, the African teams that were there were so, you know, aggressive and attacking. And it was like a breath of fresh air, that World Cup. It was just, it, it was something else. It was, it had it had like a, a real sort of naive exuberance about it. And it was a fantastic tournament to watch. I loved every bit of it. And it was, you know, a slight anti-climax. But I think, you know, with the rose-tinted glasses on, you look back at it, you think, you know, all these tournaments and cup competitions whatnot are fantastic but quite often when you actually go back to it very rare are the finals great spectacles because they're usually yeah, very much sort of state, tight. Yeah. yeah there's so much on the line that it is a tactical battle and everyone's nervous and everything else so yeah it um it, it was just it was a tough battle by between what were the two best teams in the tournament so i, I thought it was quite fitting that those two were in the final and and yeah, you you look back amongst uh, amongst that uh, Italian side, yeah, and Baresi and Maldini, you'd think, well, uh, again, Albertini's there, Donadoni, Baggio, some excellent players. But I I recall, you know, that was the tournament where we saw Babetto doing the little celebration with his baby, who's now yeah. a professional football himself. You know, Romario and Babetto. And my abiding memory of that final, for some reason, I always associate that final with Dunga. That that sort of that just that sight of Dunga and yeah, lifting the cup. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't the most entertaining game. It, it was befitting that the, like I said, you know, the two best teams in the tournament were there to to see out the final of what was, like I said, an absolutely tremendous tournament, and still to this day one of my favourites. Frank, I'm just want to finish basically on a question about legacy of that tournament because it certainly did change the world of football in America, and you know it was like a springboard. You know, we see the, the legacy maybe of South Africa and Brazil in a, in a different light, maybe more of a negative light. It didn't have the effect that was was desired, but I think for the United States, this tournament really did. 
it, it was it was groundbreaking and, and it continued on. The legacy was was very, very positive from it. It was uh, it was a major piece, you know, in the course of events that has led to what we call soccer uh, having its please place don't, in this country. Please don't. Well, <laughs> what not we, uh, not me, but <laughs> what the American public calls soccer, um, what I call football. I mean, I'll go prior to that. I mean, the first uh, event that triggered this, I would, you know, football boom was in 1989, November 19th. The United States had a World Cup qualifier against Trinidad and Tobago that they had to win. They had by then already been given the 1994 World Cup to host. But you know how it is. I mean, we're, we're, we're going through this with Qatar right now. You know, they're not going to be in the 2018 World Cup, and now they're going to host the 2022 World Cup. I mean, how, how seriously can we take them? They have a team, you know, and at least beating Trinidad and Tobago in 1989, the goal by Paul Caligiuri, what they call the shot heard around the world. I think that was the very first event that triggered everything. Um, the 1994 World Cup was the big event uh, that helped move it along. You know, so without those two things, I don't know if we have, you know, a league the size that we have with crowds the size that we have. And, with, you know, I mean, if you go Seattle, Seattle gets 30,000 a game, you know, but when you look at a landscape of American football and baseball and, and basketball being the three major sports, you know, if you can draw that much, that's pretty impressive. Uh, most others can get between fifteen to 20,000 to a game. So, you know, you don't... It is a it is a very you know the 1994 World Cup is certainly a major piece of you know football history here in this country that without it you're not quite sure if you have what you have now with the league or 65,000 people packing the stadium in Miami last night for Real Madrid and Barcelona to play a friendly um, you know the big international clubs coming over here and doing their preseason tour and doing their preseason training it's definitely taken on an identity. Uh, it definitely has its its fan base and it definitely has its market now. And, uh, you know, to your point, Dave, the 94 World Cup is a huge uh, was a huge launching point for all of what we have now. I think the big surprise for me in it all, Frank, was those stadiums were full. The American public, I remember beforehand, you know, in Europe especially, we were very, you know, oh, well, this take off, it's America, you know, it's, you know, you're very, very sort of focused on certain sports, baseball and so on. But you filled those stadiums to the max and, and that's what impressed me the most about it, I think. Yeah, you know, and if it, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's, you know, they're in the frame to host another World Cup. They bid for 2022. There's talk that they'll go into one with, where there's going to be three hosts, where they host with Canada and Mexico. I don't know how that's all going to. I don't know how that's all going to play out. But the stadiums will get packed again. You know, we had the um, we had the Copa America Centenario last summer. Huge crowds for that. You know, the uh, the Women's World Cup in 1999. I think that that was the most that was the most attended Women's World Cup. Well, and I think that the advantage that the United States have, and they have at least two dozen stadiums that you can, you can seat 65,000 or more. So you have the ability, you, you have the big stadiums, you have the ability to fill it. And if you've got a product, if you've got a product that the public are interested in, they're going to turn out for it. You know, in this case, uh, the 94 world cup, I think stimulated a lot of people's curiosity. Yeah. It was incredible to see, you know, not only the, the venues, but to see them packed. So it was, um, you know, and then, the, and then they, and then that followed up in 99 when we had the women's world cup and that was being staged you know, in the same size stadiums. I was at Soldier Field in Chicago for, they had, they would, they would, they would play two matches in on the same day. It was Brazil against Italy. And then the U S played Nigeria. You're absolutely right. And I think if we, 
host another one, we're not going to have a problem packing the big stadiums again. Well, from my own point of view, I would welcome, I think, another one in the USA because, you know, you have the infrastructure, everything's in place for it. There's very little work that needs to be done. Andy, I take it you would agree. You wouldn't, you know, I'm on record in these pods being very anti-American. So I said I would finish in a positive and here we'll go. I I would welcome another uh, World Cup in, in the United States. Without a shadow of a doubt. After watching that 94 World Cup, I can't wait to see another tournament in America because I think it would be even bigger and better when you not only has the MLS now sort of established itself and you, you've got teams there and you've got a growing fan base and it's, and it's popular, but you know, the, the European teams have got huge support over in the United States now, as well as you've got a lot of European influences in America anyway. So I, I think it would be another huge success, probably even more successful than, than the 94 one. So I would most definitely welcome it. And I I was gutted that it went to, to Qatar. And, and I personally, I felt it should have been America getting it. We promise if if, uh, if we host another one that we won't have uh, the opening ceremonies include Diana Ross taking a penalty. Well, you could train her up. I was just about to say, you know, you've plenty of time to get her trained up that she has a target this time. But listen, Frank, <laughs> we've rambled on. I think we're a wee bit over our time, but it's been but it's been an enjoyable chat. First of all, thank you so much for appearing. Thank you so much for your time. And just whatever you want to plug there, uh, far away, uh, whatever pods you're doing, uh, whatever you're writing, I know you, you do a bit of both on, on for WFI, so feel free. Floor's yours. Excellent. Well, uh, first of all, on Twitter, you can follow me at FTC underscore 21. It's pretty much all football musings, uh, largely AC Milan, but I'll get into some other things too. I'm the host of Syria Sit Down on World Football Index. We will be back on recording on August 13th, uh, where we will preview the upcoming season. Uh, Richard and I already have Blair Newman and Mark Neal uh, from the Gentleman Ultra uh, getting ready to sit in with us on that. We have one more guest that we want to uh, include on that pod. Um, we will come back. With weekly pods as the season goes on with uh, with a rotation of guests like we did last season, I think that that was a pretty favorable format. And uh, the Calcio Consultant uh, will get back to writing weekly uh, when we get into the season. I will have my final edition of the preview and the uh, table prediction uh, for the upcoming season on that. So uh, do check that out. Indeed, and I say very, very popular column you, you write on on WFI, and also a very, very popular pod. I'm delighted to hear Blair's coming back. Always a always a great listen. Andy, you're going to be starting a little Bundesliga uh, column for WFI as well. Maybe you you want to plug that in amongst yours far away. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm at Andy Armchair. If you should uh, so wish to follow me on Twitter, uh, unfortunately, probably most of what you'll get from me on Twitter is um, is Liverpool stuff. But I do mix it in with all of the bits and pieces and bits of Bundesliga and whatnot in there. And yes, I shall be starting a weekly uh, Bundesliga column entitled uh, the Bundesliga Zeitung on WFI. So that, that'll be, that should be due to start uh, around about the middle of August, uh, just in that week leading up to uh, the, the Bundesliga kicking off with uh, Bayern against uh, Leverkusen, I believe. That's grand. And we also have a, Andy and I have another little project that's going to fill your international breaks and your Christmases as well. So the special little pods coming up along the way, a bit of nostalgia involved in those as well. From my own point of view, with our, our usual pods out this week, uh, Sound of La Liga's back this week with a Mexican pod, um, a, lot of, a lot of spotlight pods. 
Um, so, you know, slowly but surely, as Frank said, they're starting to record again. All the pods are coming back. We're recording a Portugal pod on Tuesday, which we're pretty excited about. Uh, check that one out whenever it comes goes live th- our Tuesday evening. Oh, well, on that, just thanks once again to uh, both Andy and Frank for, for their time on appearing on this. And thanks again to the listener. And until next week, when I believe we have Adam Brandon. So get your football anoraks out. It's going to kill me for saying that. But other than that, it's goodbye. <laughs>